podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper, but most importantly today of Tennis Unfiltered, the podcast that doesn't hold back. Uh, I've got George Belshaw with me, who, uh, George, I, I think that might be some Novak Djokovic memorabilia that you've donned for the evening. <laughs> not not intentionally. It is, it is a, a Lacoste jumper. Uh, that my my mum bought me for my birthday, I think. Um, <laughs> she knows you so well. Yeah, and uh, uh, my birthday's in July, so this is quite a big jumper, so it's got very little wear so far, but it has really turned this week. It's bloody <laughs> freezing, so... Yeah, it is actually pretty Baltic. As someone who lives in a, like, early 20th century terraced flat, um, it, I, I'm not blessed with a house that really holds the heat very well, and this cold snap has really done for me. Um, Calvin, you're in a particularly cold part of the country. How cold is it in Stockholm? Uh, it's 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 cold. It's you know, I mean, it's 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 the first time all year I've worn tracksuit, hoodie, and a coat. Um, not all year <laughs> since since the winter, since last winter, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, it's cold, but it's not absolutely freezing. Um, okay, you know, it's uh... and, and Stockholm, the like the stadium. Or the, the the main court. It's one of the. It's a really weird looking place. Is it an old courtroom or something? I've never really understood. No, what it no, is. it's it, no, it's a it's an actual tennis center. But I don't really right. know how to describe it. The building is huge and it's like a maze. And there's just indoor tennis courts randomly scattered around the place. Um, <laughs> and there's about three floors, and the tennis courts are on all three floors. Um, and it's massive. It's it's like in the center of Stockholm. And it's got a centre court in it that looks like an old gym uh, floor with sort of benches. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of history to it. You know, you look at who's won the tournament. Pretty much, it's a who's who of tennis over the last fifty years. Again, mm. Pretty much everyone's played here. Um, so yeah, it's it's nice. And and, c- conditions wise, I mean, I, I seem to remember maybe last year, the year before, quite a lot of complaints about the courts at that tournament. But how have you found them so far? Uh, they're very slow. Courts are very slow, and um, the balls are very slow. Standard, you know. I don't know why the ATP insist on doing this on main tour. Um, slow balls, mm. slow courts, and you know what? What are you going to do? And then the tennis isn't that thrilling um, because mm. of that. Um, they're using the Robin Soddling balls that they tend to use in Scandinavia. Um, which I don't have a problem with the balls as such. I just don't see why you would use slow balls, slow courts. And those are those uh, are slow courts, slow balls. Uh, I know we've spoken about court speed a lot, but more in the kind of um, through the lens of singles players. How, how big a difference does it actually make to the doubles guys where the points are generally a lot shorter and a lot more kind of volleying and stuff? You almost expect the ball to be put away much more presumably less impact than the singles or is that um, I don't think that's necessarily the case George because 55% of the top 100 now serve and stay back so whereas mm. historically and that's going up apparently by about 3 or 4% per year at the minute mm. so it's not necessarily like that um, now I, I, you know for, for, for balance's sake you, you don't also don't want in a doubles tournament you don't want fast balls fast courts because if you have fast balls fast courts indoor doubles then it's it it basically it's there's no rallies 
at all. Mm. But yeah, I mean, you get, you know, it does play a factor in it because you notice there's there's a big discrepancy in the types of players that win on slow courts and who win on quicker courts. Um, so it definitely plays a part. We were saying today, actually, I was talking with a few of the players and we were talking about how this this problem that the ATP has with just everywhere as slow courts, um, especially the hard courts, indoor hard and outdoor hard, compared to the challengers where they were saying there's some challenger, challenger tournaments where the courts are absolutely rapid. And the reason is, and I said this to them, that the only reason can be is because the, the main tour, they resurface their courts every year. And mm. once you resurface it, you're getting fresh grit because unless people don't know, it, 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 when you lay a hard court, it has grit in it, it has sand in it. And the more you play in it, it, it basically sands down. So if you, if you rub your hand across a, across a fresh hard court, it's like a piece of sandpaper. You can feel the grit and that, that slows the ball down as it's going, obviously, because it's going into grit. And it also roughs the ball up, making the ball slower over time. So a few games in, you've got a fully roughed up ball and on a slow surface. Whereas the challenger tournaments, they don't have the money to resurface the court. They're just normal tennis centers. So they don't have the money to resurface every single year. So you're getting a court there. They're the courts that you're getting are sometimes eight, nine years old. The one in, um, the one that Henry and uh, Francisco played in last week in Malaga, you couldn't even see on the stream. I will, I will post, I'll send you James, a, a point to post on it uh later because the the sun with the sun was shining and the court was so worn down it was basically shiny and you just couldn't (laughs) see the ball so i've got a video of a rally and you've no idea where the ball is it's just you see people you just see people four four guys just swinging their rackets and Mm. you hear the sound of a ball and for the whole time you can't see the ball and they said it was like that on the court from one side because the sun when the sun was directly above the court from one end you couldn't see the ball at all. Wow. That's, I mean, so how does this compare, like, if you go to a standard club court, you know, which I don't know how, how often most clubs relay their courts, but not very often, right? So they'll presumably be much hardier. Will they generally be what you would consider slow anyway? No, you can put however much, this is another thing, you can put however much grit or sand you want in the mix, and that, mm. will, keep, that will make it as slow as possible. Now, a newer court, is always going to be slower because it has none of it has worn down. But you yeah. can put how so you can choose how slow to make it. But I would say at home, if you've got an acrylic hard court, you're probably getting them re, a club's on average is probably getting them resurfaced about every six or seven years. Right. Um, and some of the clubs will get them done more often than that. Now, from my point of view, it is ludicrous that anyone you'd never need to get a court resurfaced every year. It's just beyond <laughs> silly. Like the NTC, like. I don't know how much money the LTA waste every year by having all of their hard courts resurfaced. Like what? <laughs> what? There's no difference between a, a, in, in the first couple of years you won't notice any tangible difference, right. uh, or, or it's cert, it's absolutely not getting to the stage where it's too fast after one year or two years mm. even. And mm. um, so that there's no reason to do it now. I guess some of the bigger tournaments you can see you can say why because they. They mark the courts do mark, and so you know for television purposes they want a cleaner looking court. Um, but they again they don't mark to a degree that it's you can't see anything. And after a week's tennis anyway, you've got marks on them. Mm. Um, I don't know whether this is a suitable segue, but thinking about courts and shoes, Calvin, I know you're a big trainer guy. 
Um, and I want to start with, with which is probably about the seventh biggest title of the of the week. But Leila Fernandez winning the title in Hong Kong, um, the, her third career title, her first outside of Mexico, which I just think is a funny stat because I think she's had four WTA finals in her career and three of them have been in Mexico. Um, but she won it. I don't know if you'll notice this, wearing Puma Stewie twos, um, which I'm told are a basketball shoe. They're the signature shoe of. WNBA MVP Brianna Stewart. Um, uh, just reading some comments on Reddit and stuff, Calvin, it seems that some people do actually play tennis in basketball shoes because of the extra ankle support. I don't know whether you've ever come across it. It's not just the extra ankle support. The grip is the same as well. So when um, oh, this really? has gone back for some time, since even since the, the first Jordans came out. So before the first Air Jordan came out, then basically basketball players played in Converse and things like that. But since there was actually technology that went into... Um, went into te- uh, basketball shoes. They they then started putting pop- proper grip on them, and the grip is very very similar to that of tennis shoes. Um, mm. So that's that's always been a case. And I, I wore basketball shoes when I was playing for for a while because I kind of like I liked um, the higher top shoe, like you say. But I don't know if it's because of the ankle support though, James, because they used to be ankle support tennis shoes. So the Agassi ones that regular listeners know that I love the AirTech Challenge series. That Agassi mm. used to have. Um, they they were a well, they were a high top tennis shoe, but then they kind of got phased out because players didn't like playing them playing with them that high. I, I, it gives you a little bit more support, but it's not like wearing an actual ankle brace, um, mm. you know. So I, I think it's more when I used to wear them. It's basically because tennis shoes became really expensive and at the time. Basketball shoes weren't that expensive, so <laughs> you could get deals on them. You know, they'd often be right. just more of them in sales and that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, I always, if, you know, I wouldn't take a basketball shoe above a tennis shoe, but it is, it's not unfeasible. You can play in basketball shoes for sure. Yeah. That's say mm. they're probably a little bit too heavy now. Um, right. cause tennis shoes now, the tennis shoes that are around now are very, very light. So back then, like I'm using, for example, they're like the AirTech challenge three, which was the famous Agassi one was made of all leather. And the Air Jordan 1, which was probably around about the same time, was also made of all leather. So there's probably no difference in actual weight. Whereas the tennis shoes now, like the Vapors and that kind of thing, the Cage, the the, the high-end Nike ones are way lighter than, for example, the, the most modern pair of Jordans. So you, you couldn't, I wouldn't necessarily mm. advise it to be playing in a top-level tennis player to be playing. But But yeah, it's basically because the grip is the same. Hmm, interesting. I mean, Georgia, you've broken or damaged most of your joints, so I assume you wear more strapping than trainers really need to apply. <laughs> no, I, I, to be honest, I was quite glad you didn't ask me anything about this, James. I, I had no idea what Calvin just, just said all about that. So <laughs> I found this a very educational <laughs> educational segment of the podcast. Um, I, I can't relate that. I mean, I used to play in some quite heavy Prince trainers, and I definitely wore them far long before they should have been changed and I, rem- I remember I've, I've got a c- couple of pairs of kind of got one Nike one Adidas pair now and uh yeah as Calvin says that oh, I couldn't believe it when I kind of was changing uh probably 10 years after I should have done so yeah mm. I can definitely relate to them lining up I can't say I own many pairs of basketball shoes so I'll have to <laughs> take his word for that it's one of the I thought that I thought you would have been scouted for basketball George given your, your <laughs> I used to play a bit at school but I'd never I was never good enough to buy specialist shoes for it I just used some trainers I, I did um 
I did a thread on Twitter. I'll try and find it. Well, you can find it if, if you search my timeline about the, the 10 best pair of 1990s tennis trainers. And in it, there's quite a sort of, um, there was quite a, a crossroads moment, actually, with where it went from being heavy trainers to light trainers. So when Jim Courier and Pete Sampras were both world number one and two at the same time, and they both signed for Nike in the same summer. And so they both developed their own shoes. Now, the Courier one, I forget the name of it, but it had Kevlar on it, which is what they made bulletproof vests from. Um, mm. And that was a shoe that you you would get if you wanted them to last, because they came with a six month guarantee, because it had it had bulletproof material on it. Um, <laughs> whereas the Sanfras shoe, which was the Air Oscillate, was much lighter um, and streamlined, and that was that was a great tennis shoe. It was the the Air Oscillate for actual playing tennis in? It was a, that was where it changed to like you could geez these things are like just weren't like wearing a pair of socks, and it was still like compared to now it would still weigh a ton. But the, but the the courier ones weighed absolute ton because they had like about seventy grams of Kevlar on each shoe. <laughs> Trainer nerds all around the world are really enjoying this. I don't <laughs> I don't know how much anyone else is understanding, but I it's it's enjoyable hearing you talk about something you enjoy, Calvin. We can just enjoy that. Um, George, I'm going to have to ask you a follow up question about actual tennis because. Much as I was joking about Leila Fernandez only winning titles in Mexico, it is quite interesting, and I don't like to make the comparisons with Murata Kanu because obviously they had that you know joint moment of history. But um, she is a player who's got quite a lot about her uh, in terms of sort of skill set. And okay, she didn't beat many great players in Hong Kong, but winning titles makes a difference to players, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean. You know, it's, it's always hard to say exactly what's going on with a player, but you, you you do have to wonder kind of what the knock-on effect of losing that that match in New York was for her. I mean, she's not had the same kind of excuses. And I, you know, I'm not saying Rana is making excuses, but she's had a lot of kind of fitness issues during that time. I don't feel Fernandez has had quite as dramatic injury problems. Um, and she's just not really kicked on and in many ways, kind of Fernandez's run to that US Open final was infinitely more impressive than Raducanu's. Mm. Almost felt like, and I don't know if we remarked this at the time, that she felt a lot better placed to actually make quite a big transition towards the top of the game because she was showing she was mixing it with the best players in the world, whereas Raducanu was relatively untested. Um, yeah. that That's not really proven to be the case and you know she she's struggled for not only um tournament wins but actual match wins there's Mm. been a lot of kind of really inconsistent um play from her a lot of times she's going out first round getting a couple of rounds in maximum so deep runs have been kind of few and far between really um so yeah i think it's, it's definitely good for her she's someone who People do know, you know, we remember the billing of that final at the time being, is this a new big final we're going to see a lot of in women's tennis? Fernandez v. Raducanu, two, you know, teenagers, young women kind of committing. And, you know, it's not gone that way at the minute, but people will still remember that via Raducanu. So it'd be good good for her to get back into it. And, um, yeah, hopefully it's a kicking step. As you said, James, not the strongest field. So I'm reluctant to say this is a, a great change of the tide but for someone who's not had many wins um it could only be a good thing hopefully 
Yeah, and I also just think winning titles, like it, I think it does sort of make a bit of a difference. Just just winning titles generally, um, and also you know, like I said, doing it outside of Mexico, like doing it in all right, not totally different conditions because Hong Kong's a pretty humid place and hot place, and she obviously benefits from being incredibly good athlete and very physical, um, and kind of relishing that. And obviously, she was she was wearing basketball shoes, which is the real obviously the real <laughs> difference. So. Um, yeah, just just an interesting um, little result, really. Uh, I've got another uh, equipment-based question for you. Um, we will go on and, and mention, well, we should mention that Jessica Pagula won the title in Korea um, and revealed an interesting little tidbit on, um, on her Twitter saying, this one is extra special. I'm half Korean. I don't speak it, uh, it the language, and I'm still learning about my culture. My mum was adopted and left on a doorstep of a Korean police station. But I've been overwhelmed by the support from Korean fans. My mum visited her orphanage here when I played this event four years ago. It was the first time she felt open about learning about her past, her health struggles the past year, made this tournament a goal to win. It's been such an honour to play in front of you. Um, Jessica Pagula often criticised for being the sort of boring one in the top 10. So I hope that people start to maybe drop that uh, particular moniker over time. Um, but the kind of news line that came out of the career open, uh, I'm not sure we've ever talked about ever lease before on the show, um, but she pulled out the career open due to injury uh, and basically said she, she was having problems with all the ball changes. Um, she said, I think it's time for the WTA to rethink ball change throughout the tournaments. Adjusting every week has been really tough on a lot of players. Now, I hear this from players a lot about, oh, it's a different ball you know, every week or you know, ball changing and obviously in like to Grand Slams, you play with the, the same ball as the slam leading up to it. Calvin, can you explain in layman's terms why changing ball between talk from tournament to tournament has such an impact? Is it as simple as if it's a different ball, you've got to spend a bit more time hitting it to get used to it and therefore you're just upping your load? Or is there more to it even than that? Um. I think that varies from player to player. Some players will say that they just don't like the change of it. They don't care which ball it is, but they, they don't like changing of the ball too much. Uh, mm. It's the felt and that kind of stuff. It's mainly the felt, what kind of felt it is. It just feels different off the racket. Um, and some players will just say that certain balls are just crap and they don't mm. want to play with those balls. Um, <laughs> now... I don't really know where I stand on it because it, it's like anything in the modern world. There's, a, there's an element of capitalism about it in that the, the reason why the tournaments have different balls is because it depends which ball supplier they can agree the best deal with. Mm. And there's quite a lot of money in that. For example, Wilson named their best ball after the US Open. Yeah. It's the Wilson US Open. So, mm. you, you know, so then you, it's not like... Who would and be they in charge? Have to pay of a lot of money for the rights to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, Wilson will have to pay the U.S. Open. Yeah. For it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and and similarly, Wimbledon is a Slazinger ball. It's mm. it's Slazinger. It always has been Slazinger. Um, so mm. I don't know what you could do. So like, say that the ATP decided right, we're having the the tor- the, the the ball of the tor- the ball of the ATP is going to be the the Babalat team. Okay. Then what's US Open going to go? No, no, wait up. We, we've got a good deal with these. We've got a good deal with yeah. Wilson. Like where you're mm-hmm. not telling us what kind of ball we have to use because then you're taking away our negotiating position from that. So yeah, 
Um, but at the same time, what I can't understand is why you can't just have... I can understand it, sorry. What you could say, one argument is just tell all the ball companies you have to have a standardised felt, standardised bounce, and that kind of thing. That's what it's got to be. But then they'd lose their negotiating position. They could say then that, well, wait a minute, we think our ball is better than that. But why would yeah. we... All the balls think they've got a better... They've got the, the, the superior product. So th this week now, we're playing with the Robin Soderling ball, as they tend to play within Scandinavia, which claimed that it was the perfect tennis ball. It's rounder than any other tennis ball, apparently, <laughs> and, and has the best felt. Um, and he's gone pretty big. He was sat next to me today, actually. Um, uh, so, you know, and that's a startup company. He's, he's obviously got a startup company. It's been going a few years now. So what mm. are you going to do with him? You're going to tell him, no, you're out of business now because all the tournaments have to use the same ball. Yeah, and it kind of comes back to what I was talking about with someone yesterday because Noah Djokovic has been talking this week about the PTPA and various things. We might come on to it. But it comes back to that same thing where there are so many different stakeholders in every tournament that you couldn't negotiate a unilateral deal and just say, this, as you say, Calvin, this is the, the ball of men's tennis. You couldn't do it yeah. because there are all the tournaments are owned by such so many different kind of strands. It would be. I, I don't I mean, even know the legalities. I don't even know if the legalities of it that you could say is there a monopolies um, infringement there, where the other companies would say, what would, what for example would Wilson, Robin Soderling, Yonex, Babala all say if if the ATP went right? We're using Dunlop now. That's what well, we're I using. Mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you would have to go. I don't know U.S. law on monopolies remotely. Yeah, um, but I'm obviously, sure there'd be somewhere that would say no, yeah. no. That's that's not how it's going to work. It won't change. It won't change just because of that. The company, the, the tournaments need to be able to negotiate their own ball, and the companies yeah. will say, "Well, we think our ball's the best ball." Um, hmm. I know that, that you know there are certain balls. The play that the the players, the professional players, can tell the difference. Like I think yeah. it's like I can't tell the difference now. If I was maybe hitting more balls, I may be able to. But it's the same with the players can tell. Look, these these are guys who can tell the difference if their their racket's half a pound looser, than, mm. uh, and if they're playing with a different ball, the players can immediately tell the difference. It, is the injury aspect real, Did, or is that something that's been said on the tour and it's just kind of carried away? Do you think there's any actual science? I, I, I think all I, all I would say about that, George, is I know that from physios and, and purely for things such as tendonitis, which is quite a big injury, is that they say that all the physios will say changing anything is likely to increase the likelihood of tendonitis. So changing the amount you play, doing, doing, doing more, changing the racket you use, changing the string you use, changing the string tension you use. So therefore, changing the ball you play is likely to increase the likelihood of, of, of tendonitis just because your body gets used to something and adapts to that thing and then it's adapted to it and once you once you start changing things all the time now i don't know enough about you I, we'd have to speak to a physio to ask about actual you know whether changing the ball every week can actually affect directly affect an injury um I'm a, I've got to say I'm a I'm a little bit skeptical about it just because of the other than tendonitis, um, which I can see mm. there's an element of that because I know that I know I've 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 had players who've who've suffered from tendonitis just through changing string tension by one or two pounds, um, and that wow. kind of thing. So um, 
But other than tendonitis, I, I can't see as, look, you're not pulling a hamstring because you're playing with a different ball. You know what I mean? And it's like, you're not <laughs> even in the, sh you know, I can't see our, the, the talk that you're putting through a shoulder on a serve compared to the, the minuscule change of a ball is, I'd find it difficult to see how that affects that injury and that kind of thing. I think it's more for players, it's more the frustration of having a different ball all the time. Hmm. Let's move on. Um, let us know if, if you're if you're an amateur who thinks they're good enough to tell the difference between a uh, ball just by hitting it. I'd be fascinated to hear it. Let, give us an email, tennisunfiltered.gmail.com. George, I, I can, you reckon can, you might? I can tell the difference between new balls and really old ones. If that helps. <laughs> I mean, what Impressive I will say, th this was the first year that pre-US Open this time when we practiced before. They ended up, I think this year, they ended up using the same ball for men's and women's. But, yes. Um, but... At the NTC, where we practiced for a little bit before that, um, they had both the old balls and the, 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 the women's balls and the men's balls, the extra duty and the normal duty. And you, it, that was t tangible just in how quickly they fluffed up. The normal duty balls were fluffed up, fully fluffed up within about seven or eight minutes of tennis, whereas the, the heavy duty ones, you would get 25 minutes out of them, which is about how wow. long you'd expect for a um, ball change. I still remember that story you, Calvin, of saying when Luke was playing Futures somewhere like Germany and like they change every 11 games in Futures or something or yeah. 13. 11 and 13, and just, yeah. It was just going like 7, 6, 6, 7 and points lasting like 10 minutes. Well, this is the one thing I've never got. I've said it on the pod before. I never get why we do it in tennis, why they change it, but for a certain amount of games rather than an actual time. Yeah. Like surely it would make more sense, especially in doubles. It makes no difference because you have sudden death juice. So, mm. you, you, know, you know, it's like you're not getting long games in that. You're not really getting long rallies either. But I don't get why you wouldn't go, right, we change, change balls every half hour or the game after the half yeah. hour is gone. I yeah, think exactly. that would be... Um, I, I suppose it it's, to no try and make, it's to try and make it fair with the serving, isn't it? But I don't really see... <sighs> it wouldn't make any difference, though, because you're getting... You still get the ball still worn by the same amount if you know what I mean. So and you're not going to sacrifice mm. winning a point. You're not going to guy going, oh, I could win this point now, but I'd rather not, I'd rather drag it on for another 10 seconds. So, so he's got a, a fluffier ball to serve with in the next game. <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen, is it? But yeah, it, I don't know how it's one of the, it's, it be. it's just one of those things that I, I figure at some stage in tennis, somebody's going to figure actually, this is a stupid idea. Let's just change yeah. after a certain amount of time. But yeah, I remember that tournament in Germany on the, the slowest clay courts I've ever been in because they were about 100 metres below sea level. So everything <laughs> was damp in a forest. And you, you, like, you could try and... I don't think you could even get a ball abuse in that place. The balls were so heavy. If you tried to whack it out of the court, it'd probably land like <laughs> just 10, 10 centimetres past the baseline or something. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, right, just to, to tidy up our last bit of um, WTA... Um, Cheng Xinwen winning the title in Chengzhou. I'm sorry for my Chinese pronunciation. I am working on it, I assure you. Um, but she went and won the title anyway, which is, I don't know, George, we, we kind of talked about how important, and you wrote to a certain extent about how important it would be to have like Chinese talent winning Chinese tournaments. She's obviously someone who we all think is pretty talented. Um, so pretty good to see her go and win that title, really. I mean, a, a, a good moment to end at least the... WTA, WTA Chinese swing on. 
it, you know, it was a, a good result really for for the women's tour there, and hopefully we'll generate a few more bums on seats next year. Maybe pulling mm. them all back. Um, what, what maybe won't bring them back is the threat of having to hear us sing again. Um, which... <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, of, a, of all the stunts I've seen in tennis, this this really was not a good one. So, um, what did she sing? Lord only knows. <laughs> it was something in Mandarin, I assume. Um, right. Okay. It didn't sound particularly uh, in tune to me. Um, but I don't. I, I can't say I know the song. <laughs> Maybe they enjoyed it more. There. <clears throat> I was kind of thinking who, after seeing that, like, who who is the one player you'd want on the tour to win a title where they had to like mandatorily sing a song at the end of it. Yeah, that's a question for Calvin. I I can't think off the top of my head if any of them can sing. I mean, def, definitely not Denis Shapovalov. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, I don't know. Um, there, I'm, there must be some good singers, but I just none spring to mind. Um, let, us mean, uh, let, let us know. Let us know on Twitter I, at Unfilter Tennis. Well, Andre Rublev was in a boy band, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. Show. He was in a One Direction tribute fan. band. Yeah, has it, I was yeah. thinking, right? Has has just going off topic here? Has there been a bigger turnaround? Can anyone remember in the sort of perception of a player than Andre Rublev in the last two years? Because sort of two years ago, he, he seemed to be this like dour, dim, overly intense, like you know, serious sort of standardized cliche of Eastern Europe. Yeah, the, and now he's like just the most fun guy ever. Everyone yeah, yeah. loves him, but then, yeah, I, I, it's it's quite a turnaround, I think. He might and be the only bloke who had a good Labour Cup. Like he, he was just hilarious at all points. Well, I think yeah, because I think he both tried and saw it for the ridiculousness that it actually is. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I find it a bit. A bit strange, and it's not an act because I've seen him around the tournament. This is also around the tournaments as well. He's just at the US Open when he was there, and he's just having a laugh with everybody. And mm. two years ago at Wimbledon, stern faced than exactly how you'd imagine him. This is it's yeah. very, you know, good to see, but I don't think it's an accident. Um, like he, he has talked a lot about working on you know being nicer to himself on the court, and I think when you when you go out to make that kind of personal growth uh, in terms of treating yourself better on the court, I think you do inevitably change who you are a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't because... know about that. You see, you see what he did when he lost uh, yesterday. <laughs> like thinking nearly, I don't know if it's possible, he almost broke a thigh. I think that is right. Well, we'll revert to type occasionally. Yeah. but. Is it's that be- better than like punching it with your knuckles? I, th- that, I think the knuckles thing always looks so bloody painful to me. Yeah. Well, today, when I was watching Henry and Jules, and I was watching it with Evo, actually, who sat next to me, and Nadovyasov, uh, not Henry and Jules, Henry and um, Francisco Cabral, new partner, um, Nadovyasov whacked his calf with some serious aggression. And we both looked at each other and said he was about a centimetre away from his shin. And if it had hit his shin, Whoa. I reckon the racket would have gone straight through it. Like the, oh. the, 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 the... Now, I know the, the guys mean... in Kazakhstan are pretty tough, but he was <laughs> he was not far away from his shin bone at all when he whacked it. <laughs> oh dear. 
Oh dear me! Sorry, I'm being distracted because the dog has come to ask me for things, and I don't know. What, I don't know what you want. So he, he wants just... to know who the best singer is, or he's got something yeah, to chip in. Yeah, I mean, I think Buzz puts himself in there, but he's not very good at tennis. He doesn't like tennis <laughs> balls, unfortunately. I can't distract him with them. Um, yeah, it might be Andre Rublev. Who I interviewed him at um, Boodles this year, and he was like genuinely really funny. Like uh, he was doing some press thing before us where they were like, "What's your favorite British food?" I think I've told the story before, but obviously that's an awful question because British food doesn't exist and it's mostly a bit rubbish. So someone was like, oh, what about Yorkshire pudding? Um, oh, no, I don't know what that is. What about a scone? I don't know what that is. What do you mean you don't know what a scone is? Someone had to go get him a scone in order to explain what it was. Um, they did have scones. Like... I mean, I, I know that when I was, I think I said this on the pod at the time, cause when Luke and Jules played against the City Pass brothers there and they had some like, a, they had some sort of afternoon tea type thing in the players area. And right. one of the funniest things I've seen all year was somebody trying to explain to Stefanos Sissipas what a sausage roll is. And, uh, <laughs> and he was holding it like it was the most bizarre thing he'd ever seen. And, like, you know, he's. he's I can, I can he's just not see him. to explain anything at all. <laughs> I can just see him being like, what is this um, sausage roll? What, <laughs> what is it? Hmm? What is it? Um, right, yeah, okay, it, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, yeah, it was quite. Exactly. Sad. And I assume it was the same. They did have scones there, so I think they probably had two. I did see. Yeah. I don't know whether anyone saw it. That thing last week with Jerry Shang and Andy Murray, where they were comparing Scottish food and um, Chinese food. <laughs> I did not. Had, yeah, it's on. You see, it's on tennis <laughs> TV, Instagram. But I found it quite angry. And I was saying this to Henry earlier. I found it quite angry in that one of the things that they had um, Andy Murray give Jerry Shang as from Scotland was Iron Brew. Um, and Andy was, you know, I love Iron Brew. It's an amazing drink. And that really winds me up because that's bullshit because they've taken all the sugar out of it. And I don't see any how anybody could really like Iron Brew anymore. So <laughs> Yeah, they changed the recipe. It's pretty pretty yeah. controversial stuff, man. That yeah. dominated political debate in Scotland for like two weeks. That's yeah. all anyone talked about. Uh, I never liked it anyway. Most I grew up in Scotland, and a lot of my mates swear by it for a hangover. But I, I just can't go on do, with it. Do, do you want to hear a, a near Iron Brew related fact? It <laughs> was a fact at one point. Go on. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you are going to tell us anyway. The reason I bring it up is because um, it, Iron Brew is often answered in this question, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. Right. Um, what is the only fizzy drink in the world that outsells coca-cola in a country uh, it's a nice question uh, is it in mexico it's not in mexico uh, it's not okay no i don't know you have to it, it, uh, you can pause it at home and have a think about it uh and now you've unpaused it because you can't think of it and george you can tell <laughs> us the answer well it at least when i first read this fact which was it's possibly about 10 years out of date you've just internalized um, complete nonsense now <laughs> It was a uh, Inca Cola in Peru. Peru, All right, okay. I wouldn't mind some Inca Cola. Yeah. Um, if and anyone, I don't think it's that dissimilar to Iron Brew, to be honest. So maybe that's the kind of funky f- taste. Peru that... might well be one of those countries where we're the number one tennis podcast. Like, because we are, mm. we oh, well, actually, incidentally, we overtook uh, the tennis podcast in Australia again this week. So thanks to all our Australian listeners for getting us back to number one. Uh, down under if you could speed up my visa application that i've just sent off that'd be ideal <laughs> that'd be a great a good deal to swap for um but if you're listening in peru let us know about inca cola um maybe send us some that'd be great i'd, I'd, I'd love to, to give it I've a had go it before it's nice 
Okay. Yeah, I I I love Coke from South America. A cola, sorry. Um, Anyway, before I get myself in some Rishi Sunak, I tried. I tried this year. I tried the. um, (laughs) I tried that Mexican Coke this year, and I'm very much a Coke aficionado. The drink, Mm. not. (laughs) (laughs) To make that clear, Um, and I've I've heard everyone um, everyone rave about uh, Mexican Coke for years, and I, I. prided myself that I could always tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I can tell any difference between Mexican Coke and normal Coke. Is it like Irish Guinness where you need to drink it in Ireland when it's not no, traveled so I, far? No, because I don't think so. Kind of I, had in, I had it in Dallas, which is like, you know, it's just over the it's border. It's not far, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, but England's not far from Ireland and it still <laughs> tastes different. Uh, well, it, no, it's it, a different ingredient. No, the thing with Mexican Coke is a different ingredient. It's cane sugar, right? Um, and oh, normal coat uses fructose syrup, as Rishi Sunak said in his famous. Um, uh, also, the, famous the, the Guinness thing is is, and I'm I'm gonna annoy some Irish listeners here. I'm gonna preface it. Saying, I I like Guinness, right? I like Guinness, but it is basically just stout. Like it's it's a it's it's the best marketing campaign of the 20th and 21st century. It's it's genius. It's inspired. I quite like drinking it, but I also like stout. And if other stouts were also similarly marketed, I think could be quite popular. There's a, you, a quick you... quick Guinness story that me and my mates, every Boxing Day for about 12 years, we used to do, because none of us liked Guinness, we used to think of Guinness Challenge when we went out. And you had everyone had to down a pint of Guinness, and the last person that finished it had to, do, had to buy and do a whole round of shots. Um, and it was it was an excellent game, but then there was a real scandal. One of the years that we found some someone was found of doping by putting they'd snuck they'd asked the barman to sneak some black currant in their Guinness, and it was it was it was quite the scandal. <laughs> it was um, I'm not sure the event ever recovered from it because we don't know how long this this had been going on or you know yeah all all the previous champions and previous losers yeah. you just you, no integrity left well that's it it was very much like the tour de france um <laughs> in every was, possible way yeah um so <laughs> yeah uh, i'd love to know other instances of like like d- cheating like long term institutional <laughs> doping in like zero stake stuff like that i'd i'd like to hear other examples of that um, right, we have got slightly distracted, so I'm going to drag us back on to Hubert Hercatch versus Andre Rublev. What a lane change that is. Um, the, Hubert Hercatch winning the title, 10-8 in the third set tiebreak. Pretty dramatic, uh, all in all, but I rather fear that it might be a title we all forget, George, unless he goes and wins the Australian Open or something. Potentially, I, mean, I was quite quite impressed with the stat I put in the uh, the running order today about him now winning more Masters titles than like Vavrinka, Chilich, Del Potro team. Um, Hatching off Dimitrov and Fanini. Yeah, I mean, not quite as impressive as both of those <laughs> ones, but, um, you know, the, it, it does show that these things have been pretty hard to bloody win over the last few years. And obviously, you know, that's largely due to certain... Uh, big set of players kicking around. Hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it was good for, him, good for him to get another one. Um, it, it, it's not felt he's kicked on either again 
this year, has it? I thought, you know, there were periods last year where he was playing some really, really good stuff and was not a million miles away from starting to kind of threaten. Um, well, I don't really know what I think it was going to threaten, threaten towards the top five, you know, five or six in the world. But it's not quite happened for him again this year. Um, still got a lot of weapons, still going to be a guy who I think we'll see a lot at Wimbledon over the next 10 years and could potentially have a big run there. I think he's very skilled on the grass. Um, but yeah, I just don't know. It's obviously a good win, but I mean, this draw really bloody collapsed and the, and it was lacking certain players. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's another one I'm not that excited about, I have to what say. What was it? One top 10 player left in the last 16? I mean, I thought Marojan was going to win it at one point and that wasn't even that out there, to be honest. So... Yeah, it did. It did very much fall apart, as as you say, George. Um, Huber Herkatch's consistency at Masters is becoming a thing now. He's been at. I think he's been to the, at least the third round of All Bar One this year, and he made four quarterfinals last year. He obviously made the semis in Cincinnati. Calvin, I guess, like, it's a bit of a surprise to see a guy who, you know, he's. He's basically a big server with a little bit more to him. But having just talked about how slow all the courts are these days, maybe it's a surprise to see someone like him. Or, or do you think that the serve just gives him such a high floor of performance that even on a bad day, he's still hard to beat? I'm not sure. The, th- the thing that you said there, Jim, I'm not sure reaching the third round is such a big thing because it's winning one match. <laughs> well, yeah. He'll well, get, get a bye. As a well, how often <laughs> will he get a bye? That's There's a fair that, few in the uh, Masters series. They're not, all, they're not one to eight draws. Yeah, okay. I think they've all got buys, haven't they? Talk to me more uh, about his serve and I'll come back I, to you. I think I, I wouldn't necessarily declare him as a big server. I think he's got a good serve. Hmm. But that's, I think he's just a good all-round player. He's a talented guy. He's got a good touch. He's got one of the best volleys around as well. Um, plays a bit differently. Um, I, I'd say he's, if you were to have a sort of pyramid of level of players, again, he's kind of difficult to... Um, it's difficult to place, I think. I saw somebody the other day said, um, when are people going to realise that Hubert Hercats is, is the most underrated player around? Um, he's not recognised this. And I'm thinking, like, well, who underrates him? Because everybody would think, if you were to ask, you know, a hundred serious tennis fans, most of them would say he's somewhere between the fifth and the... 12th best tennis player in the world which is where he is at any one time I would say I guess it, no one when you have those conversations about like oh who do you think's got a chance of winning a slam next year I'd outside if you were to say, if you were to say to me that none of Djokovic and Alcaraz were going to win one or or you know say uh, say if if we were to say that yeah if something's going to happen that neither Djokovic or Alcaraz win a slam next year I'd mm. ha- I'd certainly have him in the in the top level of of that kind of thing mm. of who's likely I, to do it I, maybe, no, maybe yeah. below Medvedev you'd say Medvedev's probably more likely but, but at Wimbledon you'd give him as good a chance at Medvedev yeah. I would say yeah, yeah I, I think probably there is there is an element of underrating to him maybe not by us but by, by what you've just said but I think because he's quite quiet he's quite introverted but, you know, but where do you think he is though Jay in terms of like what, where he sits not ranking wise where do you think mm. he sits as in the best players in the world, because I think it's it's somewhere between five and twelve. Yeah, he's better, probably. He's better, than, he's better than twelve, but he's not been in great form all year. But 
form-wise, mm. but I'd say in actual quality of, you know, take him in, in standard form, I would say somewhere between five and nine. Yeah, I mean, he's he's 11 in the world in the rankings. I think he's eighth in the race. So that kind of all fits in yeah. that we're probably giving him the right kind of level of rating. I think for me, you know, he's, he's obviously made that Wimbledon semi-final, but he's not really done anything else at Grand Slams. And like having met him a couple of times and having one way or another watched quite a lot of his big matches at Grand Slams, you know, I, I just I just wonder if he's got the the minerals for it. Like, yeah. I, I just don't. You know, that Federer match, I, I reckon almost anyone could have beaten Federer that day. I don't think he had a lot left. Um, and, yeah. and, like, her catch was just... He was just the next name on the schedule. It wasn't his fault, um, to, to quote a famous Alabama meme. And I I just look at him and I wonder if he's ever really going to... You know, if a draw falls apart like it did in Shanghai, then maybe because he's got weapons that he can lean on in big moments. But... I just think if that there are too many players who are as good as him with a better mentality. Like if he plays Casper Rude in a Grand Slam final, I don't think he's winning. I think oh, I'd, it, I think... I'd think I'd favour him to beat Rude in a final. I think he's just a better tennis player than Rude. Mm. I think mm. when Rude's got there, you know, you talk, you know, Rude's, <laughs> Rude just doesn't have any big wins. At least at least beat Federer. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how much that victory is really worth, to be honest. No, I know, I know what you're saying. At least he does have it. At least he's got that one on it. You know, if he goes, <laughs> I can't. Who's Rude's biggest win in a slam? And he's been Great in, question. He's been in two or three finals. Coming back to you. Three Grand Slam finals, yeah. isn't it? Can't remember, um, can't remember one of his biggest wins is. Well, he beat Holger Rune. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> right. Holger Rune. I'll tell you something about Holger Rune, right, this week. I, I watched him practice last night. And he's here without a coach. Doesn't have a coach here. He's here with his mm-hmm. masseuse and his mum. Yeah. I watched him practice with Sonego last night. And he was blowing after 10 minutes. And there really? was a period where he missed seven, seven ground strokes in a row. Mm. It, it didn't look great. And mm. I, I was, t- you know, we were talking today about, you know, and I've said before about, obviously I'm a bit biased because I'm a tennis coach myself, but... This is, what is he? This, is he six in the world at the minute, Runa? He is six in the world, yeah. Yeah, this is the sixth best tennis player in the world in the worst form that he's been in, in his short career. And he is a quality player in no sort of form, and he doesn't have a tennis coach with it. I found that absolutely bizarre. Yeah, he's that, not like he's short of the cash. Yeah, I mean, it can't be cash. No. But, you know, I thought this, it's been quite a fall from grace from, from in that from. Mm. I mean, I, I think, and I, I was kind of going to, on my long list of if if we run out of things to talk about, I was going to ask you, Calvin, about like this period of the season and how, yes, there's still a decent number of points to play for, but there must be a temptation if you're, you know, if, if by Holger Runa's claims you're crooked, and I think he is both like physically and probably emotionally pretty crocked at this point because it's been a pretty... No, for you have to. I know. I know you're not his biggest fan, Cal, but you have to say the last two years in his life have been pretty insane for a lad of his age. And if you then throw in an injury problem and the fact that he's probably, I think, a little undercooked in terms of physicality, I don't know. I'd be very tempted at this point to go. Yeah, no thanks. I'm gonna take like a proper month off and then do a proper preseason rather than like flog myself. 
have three and a half days off over Christmas and then come back and do Australia and then it starts all again. Like, I don't know where these tennis players are supposed to take time off anyway, but if I was him, I'd be like, nah, cactus. I, I, I still don't think he's injured. I've, I'm quite certain of that. Mm. He, he plays every week. He's practicing regularly. I, I don't see that. I don't see how that's possible if you're injured. Like, mm. all, all due respect to this, I'm here now. It's a lovely tournament. All due respect, if you're injured, there's no reason for you to be playing Stockholm 250 at this time. If, if you've mm. got an injury, you know, we heard about a back injury or something. You just wouldn't be playing it. And I know he won it last year. He's got points to defend, but he's still, he's six in the world. He's defending a 250. I mean, but, you know, it's not, just... I, but, you know, there's no chance of him playing in Denmark. This is as close to a home tournament that there this, really is. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's hardly a huge tournament. You know, the, the, the I know, the but if you're, fr- if you're from a tiny. small country and like... No, but James, it's, it's, you know, it's not like the only time you're going to play it. Mm. It's like, there's another tournament in Sweden. Is it Gestad or Bestad? One of the <laughs> yeah, stars, one of the stars. Yeah, um, I can't remember which one. Yeah, he, he doesn't. I don't know if he plays in that, but um, you know, I, I look play it. But if you've got an injury, take yeah. a week off. But I don't think he's got an injury. Mm. I, I just really don't think he's got one. But mm. and I don't. He's not said he has. By the way, I don't think. Uh, I can't remember who it was who said he did. Wasn't it his mum? Well, well, I mean. I... <laughs> Uh, it was him. It was him indeed. Uh, right. He said he had a, a pinched nerve in his fifth lumbar vertebra uh, since the clay court season. I, I know it can be fixed. i got to spend my time fixing it now. But, I mean, right. yeah, I don't know. It's one of those um, things, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I will say, I, I think it's also worth saying on a similar point that I, I was saying this to a couple of the players today that I can't remember a time where so many of the top 10 have been out of form. They're so badly out of form. Or not necessarily the top 10, those players around there. You think mm. like Rude, Sitsipas, Runa, um, Felix. Yeah. I think who else? Um, that's I mean, Zverev's dropped off a... Zverev, I would say, is another one, yeah. Um, he's had a couple of decent weeks, but he's fallen off the cliff a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's, I mean, but it's the time of year as well. Like, you know, Paris Masters always throws up some weird results because, like, by this point of the year, people are flogged. Like, you haven't got a real chance to take time off pretty much since, probably since the end of um, Miami. Miami's the second one, isn't it? Um, some of these like guys d- have been out of form for a while, though. Like, Sitsipas, yeah. Felix. Um, I mean, Rune has been out of form since the clay. Yeah, yeah. But that you know that may well be be the injury, but who knows? Um, just just to follow up on your previous question, Calvin, Casper um, Ruud's big results at Grand Slams. His record against top ten players at Grand Slams is one and seven, and that win over Holger Rune is the one. Um, so yeah, you could argue he doesn't have. It's a little bit Zverevy that record mm. doesn't really have a big statement win. And if you broaden it to top twenty, he's only got two more against Hercatch. Uh, at Roland Garros last year and then against Berrettini at the US last year. So, yeah, maybe he's lacking a big a big thing to, to hang his flag on. But he's made three Grand Slam finals and there's lots of people who don't do that. So, you got you can only beat what's in front of you. Um, so they say. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Roger Federer because we mentioned him earlier and uh, he's been kicking around in Shanghai. As I tweeted what I thought was very amusingly, but lots of people took it the wrong way, um, an emotional return to Shanghai for Roger Federer because it's the place where he once made so much money in an exhibition that he got into a taxi with his agent and said, we should make the Labour Cup. 
because that was an absurd <laughs> check. And uh, yeah, that's that's where the uh, the brainchild came uh, from having made that much money in Shanghai. It's clearly a country where he can still command. Well, I mean, he can command a big audience anywhere, but I suspect he can still command a pretty big check there as well, crucially. Uh, and why not? Someone's going to pay to do something. Yeah, fine. Um, good to know that stadium announcers still know how to get a newsline out of people, though. Um, asking him about all sorts of things. Um, he was on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast as well, talking about Carlos Alcaraz. He said he's still young and everything, uh, that he has achieved is fantastic, and not just on clay or hard. Winning Wimbledon against Novak in the final, that is no joke. Mighty impressive. Of course, with Rafa, Novak, myself and Murray, we all now expect every generation to produce their best tennis every single week for some reason, but it's hard to do that. And I think Carlos, he's done well, as well as he possibly could so far. But he's going to lose some time to time, like here in Shanghai. But he's doing fantastic. He's got a great game and obviously an unbelievable future ahead of him. George, do we hold these young players to an unrealistic and maybe even rose-tinted standard? Like, did, did Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and Murray lose sometimes? Or did they just win every match? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they have definitely raised the bar for what's possible. Um, but, I, but I do also kind of feel like and that, you know, Cal- Calvin may disagree with me here, but I do also f- kind of feel like there has become e- a greater sense of professionalism in tennis during that time as well, in terms of having the teams around you to keep you perfectly fit and in tip-top shape the whole time, but ensuring that consistency is there. A lot bigger, it feels anyway, a lot bigger kind of support networks for kind of the biggest stars in the world. I do, to a degree, kind of feel that that the kind of sporting excellence is a little bit easier in a modern age where you've got a lot more kind of technology to support you. I guess what's maybe tougher, and I've heard kind of Roger and Rafa and Novak reflect on this before, is that they kind of didn't, that probably is having quite a big impact on a lot of players who have been coming through in the last, whatever, five, six years, and particularly kind of, heightened in that time so you know I do think there's kind of a different kind of pressure a more instant and um, fierce type of pressure in some ways compared to uh, what Roger and Rafa and Novak would have come through but they also were just bloody brilliant tennis players and I think it's probably the biggest compliment you can give to Alcaraz really is that we kind of expect that consistency from him because we, we think he he can be that good. I think he already is like pretty bloody fantastic. Um, you know whether whether he actually does end up as good as them. It's always going to be hard to say whether he was actually as good. People will point to eras or whatever, but um, you know he, he he seems an incredibly capable, grounded, talented player. Um, and you know Roger's right. Two Grand Slams at this age is is no mean feat whatsoever, particularly the opposition he took out in that most recent one on his weakest surface. So, yeah, I think, I think we're allowed to get a little bit excited, to be honest, and the, the best players generally deal with it, the noise better than the rest. So that's that's why they're the best in the world. I, I don't think that he's any... I don't think he's losing any more than those guys were at his edge, for sure. Maybe Nadal might have been more consistent at 20, but certainly... Federer, Murray and Djokovic weren't relentlessly winning tennis matches at his age. Mm. I mean, Murray didn't win a slam until he was 25. 
Mm. Um, Djokovic won one early. I don't know whether he was 20, maybe, when he won that first Australian Open. And then he went through a few years where he was very inconsistent. Um, went through maybe a couple of two-year period. He went through one period where he couldn't hit a second serve. And uh, he was always retiring from matches because physically he wasn't strong. Of course, his his uh, army of cult followers will claim that that's because he dis- discovered that he couldn't eat gluten, which was bullshit. Um, but um, you know that he just wasn't fit enough. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he probably was gluten intolerant. But the fact was, he wasn't fit enough at that time. Mm. Um, yeah. So it, it, he's certainly Alcaraz. I'd say he's probably more consistent than. Any of them at his age? I think. Well, how old was Federer when he won his first slam? Was he twenty-one or twenty-three? It's a great. It's a great question. How old was Federer when he won his first slam? The internet tells me he was twenty-two. Twenty-two. Oh no, 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 twenty-one. Sorry, you are right, George. Well done. Yeah, very good. So you know, um, you know, he hasn't even got to the Federer stage yet. Of um, of when yeah. he started, when he's two ahead of Federer at that age. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, it's he, yeah. Um, George, do you, do you think there's? I mean, there's no cause for concern, is there? Like the the guy's young; he's a great tennis player, and like Federer is right, isn't he? He's going to lose some matches. Yeah, um, I think there's also something. You know, this was his first trip to China. You, you know, it sounds silly, been, yeah. but it's um, it's a, probably a different culture, way of life, different. Style of traveling, probably. I don't um, know. Hotel, locker room, blacked out <laughs> cars. Like it's very much the same wherever you are in the world. <laughs> I suppose so, but maybe he's been maybe he's been doing the tourist side of things a bit more because <laughs> he's never been here before. I don't know. Um, maybe the, maybe a big hint of disappointment from the US as well. Maybe that sort of result kind of has a bit of a knock on effect. I don't know. I mean, he has said he's really motivated to kind of end the year, year-end number one. So I thought, you know, there wouldn't be a dip <laughs> from his side of things. Um, you know, to a degree, it's still in his his hands. Um, he'll get chances if he does well at tournaments to beat Novak and get more points than him and do it. But, yeah, he, he he's not been playing well. I mean, Dimitrov played pretty well, didn't he, to be fair to him. It wasn't... It was like it rolled back a few years uh, with that performance. So, so it was always nice to see Grigor at his best. He's a wonderful player to watch. It's just probably not really one I'd be expecting to be beating Alcaraz at this stage of his career, to be honest. I say it quickly about the uh, when you mentioned the culture change there. A quick story that's not necessarily related to that, but is um, was that I went to a few years ago. I went to the Junior Davis Cup. Um, in Budapest and I got talking to the Japanese coach uh, the Japanese captain um, and he said about to a certain degree the Japanese but more the Chinese team uh, who were there and he said that it's hard to comprehend for these kids what it's like coming to Europe because they've been completely shut off and Mm. they don't know anything what it looks like it's like going to a foreign he said it's like going to a different planet for them mm. when they come to Europe because the culture shock is so huge that they're in, especially in China, they don't know that this world exists mm. out here and how people live and this type of food and that kind of thing. So, you know, although is... I wonder that that might have changed again with like the advance of VPNs and 
like the, the you can see some of the use like the download rates of expressvpn and stuff like that in china and it's it's pretty like pretty rampant so, so that, block that... it though because i know one of my friends like julian's coach barry fulcher does a lot of work in china he's setting up a, an academy there oh, and yeah. you can't you can't speak he's trying the vpn thing you can't speak to him Oh really? I've been, I, I even had my Express. I mean, probably going to get arrested for saying it, but I had my Express VPN running okay in Beijing. But right, okay. I, I suspect it's like um, it's just like a game of whack a mole where like they find another way to run the VPN and then they get shut down and then it just sort of keeps going like that. So it just depends. I don't know. That's that's my experience anyway. But I'm sure it's not straightforward. Um, just as keeping this podcast uh, isn't that straightforward by the by the sounds of it, people keep telling me they can't hear each other. But George, I hope you can still. Uh, I think you can still hear and see. I can still hear and see you. Which I is can hear and see you fine. It's just I've lost Calvin, which is really well, weird. He, he is still there. I can assure you. I've been listening to every word. Um, and and I'd, I'd like to George just on the basis of last week. Can you confirm that last week you you were mostly absent for your own choice? Because there's a chap on YouTube who thinks that. Yeah. He says, give George his own show. Listeners want to hear his perspective as well. He's treated like a live audience rather than a third speaker right now. And I did point out that for about 45 minutes of last week's podcast, you literally weren't online. <laughs> no, no. Free George. I agree with the, the commenter. Very good. Um, well, look, we've we've kind of been quite perfect with our timing this week. I think we've got through everything we wanted to talk about. George, have you got... Any other any other business? I've deliberately left out Marie Sharapova because I like belittling her. Yeah, we've. I think we've covered most of it. I mean, there was a little bit of a snide comment from Novak back at Rafa, wasn't there? About yeah. So what exactly anyway. was that? So, uh, so Rafa <clears throat> apparently said in a recent interview, which by the way he uh, comes said... back to your interview with him, doesn't it? Yeah, it, does. it all. If you pull at that thread, it all comes back to a George Belshaw interview. Was Absolutely. it sponsored by Estrella? Uh, it was a beer company. Amstel, Amstel maybe? Possibly, yes, I think it was Amstel. Yeah. Um, but what was funny about that interview, because it, it, you know, it was well read and stuff, but it was released on the same day as the bloody European Super League kicked off. Oh. So it got drowned. Buried, yeah. In like kind of, so unless you were like quite a big tennis follower, there was no way you were seeing yeah. that basically. So what exactly did he say <clears> in that interview? And then just pull up that thread for us. Yeah, so in that interview, he he sort of said that Novak's more obsessed about records than he is. And he sort of built on it again recently in an interview, I think it was with Movistar in Spain, where he said something along the lines of, you know, he's not frustrated that Novak's now pulled ahead of him. But sort of if it was the other way around, Novak would be infinitely more frustrated. They definitely didn't use those words before anyone claimed. But he was using the word frustrated. That was an Uh, interview, by the way, that was described as a car crash by one prominent Noah Djokovic commentator. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the most... Anyway, carry on. So Novak sort of kind of come back saying, trying to take the the higher higher moral ground, I suppose, saying he uh, he didn't... He he didn't have anything negative to say about... uh, (laughs) I love Rafa or Roger, and he holds them in great respect um, in his mind. Um, and yeah, he was kind of talking about how it's gone a bit viral. There's many people being talked about it, and he's contributed to everything I've done. Um, but then he sort of says at the end, I have my opinion, but I won't share it. 
as I don't want to go deeper for that. There's no need Mwah. for that. <laughs> I find this too ground and then a final bit of shade to be like, there's something else I really think, but I'm not going to tell you because I'm taking the moral high ground. But just by saying this, you know there's something more that I think. I, f- I find this argument between the three of them, not the, this sort of, it's a prolonged one now. It must be like 18 months, two years long, this thing, where it's the most passive-aggressive and weirdest thing that's carried out in interviews where they'll praise them. They'll praise, like, I guess it's more Federer and Nadal versus Djokovic. And, and then he fires back where they'll praise him to high heaven and then throw in like a half snide comment. That's not really a half snide comment. They'll just go like, you know, like they'll go like, you know, he's, he's, he's fantastic. Djokovic is such a competitor. My career won't be the same, but you know, he's probably better at the records because he just cares about them a bit more than I do. And it's like a, mm. it's like a half snide. And then Djokovic <laughs> will come back with something like that. Oh, it's so good that Dal's been talking about me like that. You know, he's, he's one of my heroes. My career wouldn't be the same. I, I don't have, I have so much time for him. And in regards to that comment, I have my opinions, but I'll keep them to myself. <laughs> it's just so it weird. Be how... It would be better if he finished it like, it, I suppose it's a good thing that he's not obsessed because that would have made his injury and retirement really hard. <laughs> but it's, it's so weird how like, just come out and say it. Come out, you know, just go Mourinho on it. Like, let's come at Mourinho and call what he called Benito as a fat waiter. <laughs> like, like, you know, Tennis just this weirdness. But then when they're together, so then like, then Labour couple come and they're together and it's like, they, 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 it's like none of it gets mentioned. And it's like these guys who clearly, I mean, I think it is a bit like that. You know, I don't get why we have to have this thing where they, we think they either hate each other or, or they're best mates. I think they're people yeah. who gen- generally get on quite well. They're not friends. They're not best mates off the court or anything. When they're around mm. tournaments, they get on with each other, but they equally, they, they kind of don't especially, you know, there's a reason why they're not best mates with them. Yeah. They don't it especially would be, like. I've got to say, I, I, I agree with Nadal, though. I think from a, I remember on a coaching course, they did like a, it was part of a mental module that we did, and we talked about motivation. Um, and it was really interesting, actually. Um, a lot of people found it boring, but I found it interesting about the difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation being stuff like money, trophies, records, etc., that kind of thing. And intrinsic motivation just about being better yourself all the time. I just want to be better than I am now. And I think in that regard, and this is not really a criticism at all of Djokovic this, I think he is the most extrinsically motivated out of them. And you can tell that because him and his followers have this obsession with him being better than the other two. Whereas mm. I do think Nadal and Federer are very intrinsically motivated. They, I don't think Nadal necessarily cares about how many French Opens he's got. What he really wants to do is win the French Open every year. Mm. Um, mm. You, you know what I mean? I think it's... And, and then Federer, I think, just... By the end of it, for sure. I don't think Federer gives a shit that he's got 20 and the other two have got more than him. I think at the, by the I, end I of mean, it... I mean, I think I Federer likes a pound note, doesn't he? Well, yeah. No, but that's that's not to do with his tennis, though. You know, that's no, not... Okay. I, don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. don't think he was thinking, gee, I really hope I win this, this US Open because it's three million quid or yeah. something. I think it was more... You know, the tennis, I think, by the end of it was... He was just trying to enjoy the tennis and he wanted to win... Yeah. But for no other reason, didn't want to win for any other reason than he wanted to win. And because winning yeah. meant that he was better. Whereas Djokovic, again, I think he's fine. I think Djokovic is quite obsessed with. He says it now, why is it, you know, it's, 
Like now he's saying he doesn't care about the Master Series and that he wants a slam record. He wants a world number. He wants a world number one record and that kind of thing. So that's fine. Why not just own yeah. up to it rather than throwing like snide comments back? Like you know, I have my opinions, but I won't say them. Yeah, I mean, if you've played professional tennis for eighteen years and you're not obsessed with it, what the hell are you doing? Like you should yeah. be obsessed. Like yeah. it's almost weirder not to be obsessed. It's okay, Novak. No one thinks you're <laughs> doing it for the love, and that's fine. Look, but if, if you told if you told Nadal that he's not going to win another slam now, I think if you told him a year ago you won't win another slam, I think he'd go, okay, okay, fair enough. I think if mm. you told Djokovic, he'd be in absolute bits that he won't win another yeah. slam. And I think that's what yes, quite sums it up. Hmm. Well, um. An interesting little uh, tidbit that you brought up at the end, George. It's it's it's, it's brought some real um, majesty out of Calvin that you you can't hear any of. So <laughs> you'll have to listen I'll, back to the I'll podcast later. I've, uh, I wonder if people on YouTube can notice me just looking slightly aimless in, kind of final in future, James. In future, George, if you could start like nodding when I'm talking and just go like <laughs> like that, then you can. Then you can um, it'd make me look better. So. Yeah, you can't even yeah, hear me no. when I'm saying that, so I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I like that you just realised that he couldn't hear what you were saying to him, even though you were talking directly to him. <laughs> right, let's end this shit show. Uh, thanks very much for joining. Calvin from Stockholm, George from North London, and me from the South. Um, please do follow us on Twitter, Unfiltered Tennis, or X. Uh, George wrote a lovely piece about uh, tennis in China for our newsletter, um, which came out this week or last week I should say so subscribe to our substack tennisunfiltered.substack.com uh, if you've got any questions queries comments tennisunfiltered at gmail.com that's a lot of instructions the only thing we really care about is that you come back next week Podcast Network.